I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the hill country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Today's discussion is on inflection points, uh, broadly speaking. But in terms of military thinking, uh, inflection points are an important aspect that uh, need to be examined. So uh, military thinking broadly defined here uh, in this discussion is uh, how we think about strategy, concepts, doctrine, and related material, military material procurement and force structure designs, those are all um, also sensitive to environmental change, which is why inflection points are something that need to be examined in a bit more detail. To be sure, military thinking adapts during periods following failure or at times that demand change. And so, um, you know, if a given doctrine is no longer uh, succeeding uh, or has proven itself to not work or the perception of failure is there, whether it actually did or did not work. Uh, that's that's a point in which uh, militaries often find themselves trying to change and evolve how they how they think about uh, war and warfare. There's also periods that demand change, and this is one of the things we've seen over the past two years. Uh, this evolution from what was done over the past twenty or so years in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and and across the globe to something that's uh, more in tune with the demands of uh, military conflict that we see in, in Europe today with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're at one of those points where we have to go back and look at how we're going to evolve to address these threats that, that are posed by Russia and potentially China as well. Um, but there's a small number of people that are also cautioning at the same time that we can't forget the lessons of the global war on terrorism and coin. Today's discussion is a process-oriented discussion focused on those ideas. Uh, process-oriented regarding how to go about implementing change across militaries, not just one's own service, but across institutions like the Department of Defense, as well as our allies and our partners. And as we do that, we also have to remain cautious of forgetting the things that we've done in the past and the the ideas and the lessons, the important work that went into that. I think few better people can help us examine this topic uh, with great fidelity and first-person experience than uh, Dr. John Noggle, 
Uh, Dr. Noggle is a professor at the uh, U.S. Army War College right now. And uh, sir, great pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Uh, Amos, I'm delighted to be here and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you very much. So the first thing that I'd like to, uh, to ask you there, John, is considering the Army's return to coin doctrine in the early days of OAF and OEF, I think the big thing that pops out to me is why you as an armor officer, how are you the lucky one that ended up getting the weight of all this put on your shoulders? I, I don't think the weight was, if the weight was put on my shoulders, I put it there myself. So I was um, super fortunate to graduate from West Point right at the very end of the Cold War to, to literally see the Berlin Wall come down while I was a, a grad student. Um, getting a master's degree immediately after West Point graduation, and then serving my tank platoon leader time in the 1st Cavalry Division during Operation Desert Storm. And and so I, I got to see firsthand the, the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then the very rapid defeat by the United States military, particularly the Air Force, giving credits where it's due. Um, mm -hmm of the fourth largest army in the world. So I like to say that the U.S. military took the Iraqi army from the fourth largest in the world to the second largest in Iraq in a period of about 100 hours. <laughs> and, and it was reflecting on those experiences, on the dissolution, essentially, of the only conventional threat at that time in the 1990s that, that posed a reasonable threat to the U.S. military in a conventional battle, um, Soviet Union, and, and then seeing the Iraqi army collapse as well, that, that I started to think that no one who watched a desert storm would ever choose to fight the U.S. military that way again. We were simply too good, and they mm -hmm. would know that that they were going to lose in, in weeks, if not days. And so as I thought, of, I, di I didn't think conflict was going to go away. I was a good enough student of international relations to know that. But I thought right. that, that the future of conflict for the United States was likely to look more like Vietnam than like Operation Desert Storm. And I guess the, the good news is I was right, because um, it's nice to be right. And, uh, yeah. the, and then you get invited on podcasts and stuff. And, and the bad news is I was right, right? So, so I wrote uh, my doctoral dissertation. The Army sent me back to Oxford to get my PhD. And I wrote my doctoral dissertation not on the kind of war I just fought in Desert Storm, but on the kind of war I thought we were going to fight in the future. And that doctoral dissertation ended up becoming the book Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, Counterinsurgency Lessons from Malaya and Vietnam which was for better and for worse ahead of its time. Yeah. Did you have any, so on a personal level, did you have any um, challenges working through that, that, uh, that dissonance between what I think you had been trained and I would argue probably wanted to do uh, as an armor officer versus what uh, reality or your interpretation of the future might've said that we, we had to do. Well, I was, I was super fortunate and, and, and continue to believe I was super fortunate in my evolution as an army officer to get to fight a conventional war from a tank. Um, not, not, not the last conventional war involving tanks. Obviously we've got one going on now in, in Ukraine and I believe not even the last conventional war 
um, involving tanks that the U.S. Army will ever fight. Um, but I, I, yeah. I had that experience, and um, I, I think um, something about me makes me think like an insurgent. I'm a, I'm a, a mediocre chess player, but I, I, I understand <laughs> the principles of the game well enough that I, I look for weaknesses. I, I uh, look for cross-cutting currents, and and so um, I. I and I, I studied, I was very fortunate to, to um, study at Oxford with the um, now sadly gone uh, Bob O'Neill. Uh, Bob was an Australian Military Academy graduate, an Australian uh, Rhodes Scholar, and an Australian Army officer who fought in Vietnam and, and had written books on, on his experience in Vietnam. And, and so, um, and, and my mentor, uh, chief mentor at West Point was Dan Kaufman, who fought with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, your old Black Horse mm. unit in Vietnam. And, and so I was uh, surrounded by, inspired by, um, listened to stories of Vietnam from my key mentors. And, and, and that all mixed together to, to help me write um, in the 1990s. Um, I've, I've got to tell the story. It mm -hmm. was, uh, I had a hard time getting it published. Um, Princeton mm -hmm. and Cornell were at that time, uh, maybe still are, the two best presses in international security studies and, and uh, military studies in the United States. And, and both of them turned me down. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which one, whether it was Princeton or Cornell. But one of them actually wrote me a, a nice rejection letter that said, Dr. Noggle, um, you write well, and and while we're not going to publish this one, if if you choose to write your next book on a subject of more contemporary military relevance, uh, we'd be very interested in seeing the manuscript, and that would have been in the year two thousand. That's wild. And and so uh, I ended up going to Prager and um, mm. uh, a press that was was founded by funded by the CIA during the Vietnam War. To publish books on on security studies and and um, uh, published it, um, worked on it over over the course of um, two thousand one, um, while I was uh, attending the Command and General Staff College, and and uh, um, then published it in two thousand two, not long after the attacks of September eleventh, and it had the great virtue of. Um, New Gingrich said on, on Fox News, he, uh, H.R. McMaster had told him to read it, and, and Gingrich actually read it. And uh, Newt said, um, John Noggle's brilliant book on counterinsurgency is probably the best book on counterinsurgency written by an American in modern times. Hmm. And when Newt said that, it was absolutely true, because it was the only book. Counterinsurgency <laughs> by American in modern times. Uh, that it is no longer true. Over my head. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was literally. It was the best and the worst. It was literally the only one. But but so it ended up filling a void. And and I think for officers, at least some officers of your generation, mm -hmm. have told me that in the absence of U.S. Army doctrine for fighting a counterinsurgency campaign. Learning to with a knife essentially filled that role for them in in the Hindu Kush yeah. or in Baghdad or wherever they were serving. That's a, that's a perfect segue to my next question for you. So I recently had an episode on applied history, and in that discussion, we me and that uh, that guest discussed the importance of, the importance 
of a broad understanding of potential, not preferential challenges in war and warfare. Given your experience and that anecdote that you just mentioned there, how do you think about um, how Western militaries, and I don't, I'm not trying to be specific on purpose, but Western militaries think about how they view the challenges of war and warfare today? And by that, I mean, is there, do you see a tendency to be over overly focused on what we want versus uh, at the expense of big picture potential environments that we may find ourselves in? Absolutely. Um, I've, I've long said of Desert Storm that it was the war uh, the United States Army would have picked to fight for itself if it could choose, if it could write a script itself. Yeah. Uh, a, a war against a, a mirror image, but not as good conventional military on a battlefield essentially devoid of civilians without cover from the air. Uh, so it was it was the war we'd always wanted to fight. A, a sign went up on the Pentagon after Desert Storm that said, um, uh, we only do deserts. <laughs> uh, President George H.W. Bush said, by God, we've licked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. And although I'm a big fan of H.W. Bush, um, I, I think his, his success in Desert Storm, his success in, in bringing the Cold War to an end is is underappreciated. Uh, he got that completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and so in the in the wake of, of Vietnam, the United States military, in particular the Army, consciously decided it wasn't going to fight that kind of war anymore. There's, there's terrific quotes from uh, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, from... Um, uh, the vice chief of staff of the army who became the uh, de facto chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I can see his face. His name will come to me in a second. Saying, saying that, that, that the United States Army intentionally turned away from learning the lessons of Vietnam. Yeah. When, when we published the counterinsurgency field manual in, in late 2006, it was the best counterinsurgency manual we'd had in 30 <laughs> years because we literally hadn't published one yeah. since 1975 at the very end of the Vietnam War, which was actually a terrific manual. Hmm. Uh, but, but nobody had ever read it because we decided we weren't going to do those kind of wars anymore. And, and so we were completely uh, Jack, uh, Jackine. Uh, was the uh, uh, oh, vice chief yeah. of staff of the army who, who was was very honest about the the failures of the army he had led for 35 years that was completely unprepared for what the nation needed it to do after September 11th in Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. and 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 um, so uh, I I am very afraid that we are making the exact same mistake again that uh, after relearning how to conduct counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan at an enormously high cost in blood Mm -hmm. and treasure, that we are very quickly turning away from those lessons, uh, and in particular, turning away from Afghanistan, which was an abject, colossal helicopters lifting off of the embassy roof failure, as Vietnam was, And, and we are not paying nearly enough attention to those lessons. And, and that's a, a drum I beat here at the Army War College, where I'm privileged to teach, although nothing I'm saying is uh, the official position of the United States Army or the Army War College. Um, but that's a drum I beat here. It's a drum I beat in in, in press. Um, and, and so to the credit of, of the Army War College, it's, its journal parameters published a piece I wrote uh, last year titled, why the American army can't win America's wars, making just this case Mm. that if I was right 25 years ago, saying that 
America's enemies weren't going to fight us conventionally, but would fight us as insurgents and terrorists. Mm -hmm. if, if I was right uh, then, holy moly, it's, it's way, way, way more true now. But nonetheless, we are turning away from counterinsurgency and irregular warfare and focusing all but exclusively on large-scale combat operations that I don't have any problem with, with remembering, relearning how to do those. I'm completely good with that but not at the expense of the wars that I think we're far more likely to actually have to fight. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very useful. I think it's, uh, uh, likewise, I think it's a very... <clears throat> It's a trap that we seem to be stepping into collectively, um, us and our partners um, abroad. Uh, we, we, we tend to focus on, again, what we want to do. And, uh, and I think part of that is obviously influenced by money. You know, you can't, you can't uh, pay to do everything. You can't build formations to do everything. And so we have to scope down what it is we do. But I think at the same time, from a, from a, from a publication standpoint, from a book, from a knowledge standpoint, um, that, that that could that could operate outside the money problem and you can have doctrine and concepts and strategies and ideas that are that are big enough that capture all those different elements that you you potentially might have to think about because uh, again you don't want some young <laughs> some young guy on the fly having to uh, to create that or help help the army create that so with with that uh, backdrop, what are some significant challenges that you personally faced as you worked to get the army and the other services, uh, thinking about and buying into the coin, uh, the coin, I, I don't want to call it doctrine at this point, but coin just in general. Um, terrific question. So, so, um, there's a, uh, I think a very good book, uh, on this time period, uh, by, um, Fred Kaplan called the insurgents, mm -hmm. David Petraeus and the plot to change the American way of war. And, and Fred, uh, who's a terrific writer, really captures a, a lot of the efforts of General Petraeus, of General Jim Mattis, uh, who are the, the two lead authors of uh, the Army Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Field Manual that we published in 2006, of people like Conrad Crane, longtime professor here at the, at the War College, mm -hmm. Gunnar Sepp out of the uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, um, that, that whole Dave Kilcullen, my, my partner in crime in, in, in the Pentagon. Uh, and, and so this was all happening um, while 
I started probably while I was serving in Iraq. I was sort of in OIF 1.5 from September 03 to September 04 as the war was really falling apart. Were you the first ID at that time? Right. No, I was with, um, yes, I was with the first ID. Okay. I'm sorry, with um, uh, 134 Armor. I was the uh, tank battalion three fighting in Al Anbar. Uh, in between Ramadi and Fallujah, a town called Chaldea, a pretty tough little town, and we, we fought really hard. We fought, uh, uh, we lost 22 out of my uh, tank battalion task force. We had 150 some Purple Hearts, um, Valor's Unit Award. I mean, we fought really, really hard. But at the end of it, we were, were no closer to creating stability in sector uh, than we had been when we started. My mom. Um, battalion uh, chemo made up of mugs i'm actually drinking from the mug right mm. now that said uh, uh iraq 2003 2004 we were winning when i left um <laughs> because we weren't and we knew it right and i went from there to um uh, there's a, a terrific peter moss wrote up um what ended up being a new york times magazine cover story on um on our fight uh titled professor noggles war mm. And all my buddies wrote to me and said, uh, hey, professor, if you're so smart, you probably better figure this shit out because the war <laughs> is not going well. Yeah. Your war is all screwed up. Why do you suck so bad, professor? Which is the same thing my students ask me here now um, at the places I teach. So, yeah. so I've got that going for me. But I went I went from Anbar to, um, astonishingly, uh, as a result of that New York Times Magazine story, to um, the earring of the Pentagon mm. and worked for Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz. And Paul was working for, directly for, I was working 50 feet away from Don Rumsfeld, That's who wild. was a Secretary of Defense who had, for, it was amazing, who had forbid using the word insurgency to describe the insurgency we were fighting <laughs> in Iraq that I'd just gotten done fighting. That's even more wild. And... and <laughs> It's, it was it was astonishing, right? And and so the the um, you, you can't beat your alcoholism. I'm I'm not saying you're an alcoholic, uh, Amos, but but if you are, you you can't defeat it until you admit that, yeah. that you have an alcohol problem, That's and right. you can't defeat an insurgency until you admit that it's an insurgency. Um, and 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 so um, um, we we did a bunch of the groundwork. Um, sort of uh, underneath the noses of, of people who do not want us to be writing and promulgating insurgency doctrine. And, and this is why uh, I think Fred Kaplan uh, named his book, The Insurgents, um, as we were thinking of thinking about fighting insurgents in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, um, uh, although our bosses told us not to do it. And, and so you know, the irony of writing, because uh, I, I ended up writing the counterinsurgency manual helping write the counterinsurgency manual from my desk in the Pentagon, 50 feet away from Don Rumsfeld. Mm. And and Rumsfeld got wind of, of what Petraeus was doing. Petraeus at this point was the uh, commander of the Combined Arms Center yeah. at Leavenworth, responsible for doctrine, and, and sent one of his famous snowflakes and said, what's this I hear <laughs> about uh, Petraeus writing a new strategy for Iraq? I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of strategy for Iraq. Yeah. And, and the, the system wrote back to him. I think Mike Mullen um, may have been the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at that point, but the, 
the answer came back to the snowflake and said, uh, no, 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 Petraeus is just updating old army doctrine. Uh, <laughs> nothing to see here, boss. Yeah. We're just shaking the tree, just shaking the tree, boss, just shaking <laughs> the tree. But, but so when um, the Republicans got crushed in the midterm elections of 2006, in no small part because of how badly the war in Iraq was going, mm-hmm. and when George W. Bush made what I consider to be the best decisions of, of his tenure, um, to to um, hire Dave Petraeus to run the war in Iraq, to replace Don Rumsfeld with Bob Gates, who I think is the best Secretary of Defense we've ever had. Uh, we, we happened to to have the the, the counterinsurgency manual. Coincidentally, was was done at just exactly that moment. <laughs> it's wild. And we we published it. Uh, it's 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 really an extraordinary event in 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 history. And so we published it. I think December fifteenth, two thousand six at a time when uh, the aforementioned Jack Keane, now now out of the army, had had been telling George W. Bush that we needed to follow a a new strategy in Iraq, that we needed to send more troops there and and follow this different strategy. Keane had been the division commander of the 101st when Petraeus was shot on a a range as a battalion commander uh, by by one of his own troops, a, a sucking chest wound, and uh, um, uh, Keene was on the helicopter flying him to, uh, um, to, to get surgery mm-hmm. for that. So Keene knew Petraeus well, and Keene was, was whispering in, in Bush's ear, President Bush's ear, that, that uh, the guy to take over the strategy was, was Petraeus, and that he'd just written the, the book. And, and so literally astoundingly, right, we, we published the book on December 15th. It's downloaded a million and a half times in the next month. It's uh, translated and critiqued on jihadi websites. Copies end up being found in, in Taliban training camps in in Pakistan, and and um, and and Petraeus, the guy who wrote it, is is all ready to pin on his four star yeah. and implement the the surge in Iraq with 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 the new strategy that he is. It's sort of like calling. Uh, you know, Babe Ruth calling his home run, right? <laughs> That's right, um, yeah. right? Well, yeah. Petraeus said, this is what I'm going to do. And Bush put him in charge, and he did it hmm. uh, in, in uh, one of the most uh, remarkable military turnarounds. Uh, uh, um, I think up there with Matt Ridgway turning the war in Korea around. Yeah. Uh, is, is Petraeus turning the war in Iraq around? I think it's what he will end up being remembered for most favorably in, in history. Yeah, the uh, the turnaround you mentioned is is uh, quite a uh, first person experience for myself. I was there as a young lieutenant in two thousand five, two thousand six, and uh, basically once the the mosque uh, in Samara was bombed, I think in February of two thousand six, uh, you could feel the wheels fall off the wagon, uh, and it just felt like you were in a a, a, a fire that just kept getting hotter, and there was no escape. And then, uh, so we ended up leaving in November of 2006, and I was with uh, the 4th Infantry Division at the time, and we went back to Fort Hood. Um, and, I mean, it was a complete nightmare when we left, uh, complete chaos. And when I went back again in 2008, in August, uh, July of 2008, it was like a night and day difference between uh, what I experienced when I left in 2006 to what I experienced when I came back in 2008. And so uh, it, it, to me personally on the ground, just to, you know, as an anecdotal tactical um, vignette, it, it, it really did seem like that strategy that uh, General Pretarius had put into place had worked and worked fairly well. And 
you know, that was a, it was an eye opening experience. And I think it really showed to me what having good, um, good doctrine, good ideas behind what it is you're doing, uh, how, how valuable that actually is when it's applied and, and not just sitting on a bookshelf. Uh, so as we get, uh, we're getting closer on time and I don't want to take up all of your day. So as we, uh, I think one of the, the last questions on that is how did you navigate the, I'm assuming that you, you ran into significant, uh, pushback along the way, not only, not only from the sec def, which is definitely significant, but, um, from, you know, people within, within your own service, people from other services. And, uh, how did you how did you navigate that? And did you get, you know, a lot of good top cover that helped you uh, push through some of the changes that you were helping General Petraeus and General Mattis with? So I, I, I certainly was not the most popular Lieutenant Colonel in the army. <laughs> um, right. As, as this was going on, I had, um, you know, both serving general officers, retired um, multi-star general officers um, publicly yeah. um, uh, right uh, to my face and, and behind my back say that what I was doing was unnecessary, irrelevant, unhelpful, um, and, and wrong, and, and was going to get uh, soldiers killed. We needed to focus more on, on marksmanship and firing artillery and those sorts of things, and, and less on uh, politics and information and economics and training host nation security forces. Uh, but, but I also had, had a, a bunch of, of friendly faces. Um, I've mentioned Petraeus and Mattis, of course, yeah. but uh, Doug Lute. Uh, mm-hmm. who was uh, um, the National Security Council leader yep. for, for uh, Iraq and Afghanistan policy. And, and uh, uh, Doug Luke picked up a, a phrase that I used to say, uh, we only need to get better at this if we want to win. <laughs> and uh, Doug, Doug used that. Uh, and, of course, we had uh, – um, I got to brief uh, the, the vice president, Dick Cheney, uh, on, uh, on the counterinsurgency strategy and the, the need to adopt it. And, and Cheney became an advocate, and that, of course, was very helpful. Yeah. He had a, an awful lot of influence in the George W. Bush White House. And, and, and um, I, I had friends working the, the same effort. Dave Kilcullen um, was working hard with uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, mm, yeah. who uh, ended up uh, saying that our strategy in Iraq needed to be clear, hold, and build. Uh, and, and I was actually, I was driving uh, up here to, to Carlisle from Washington to give a talk here at the Army War College on counterinsurgency. Uh, uh, I was called uh, uh, Joe Collins, a uh, longtime yeah. uh, uh, professor at, at NDU, terrific guy. Uh, Joe Collins called me the Johnny Appleseed of counterinsurgency, <laughs> said, no, you're out here planting seeds here, there, and everywhere. And so I came up to Carlisle to plant some seeds and was listening to NPR on the drive up when uh, I heard... Um, the tape of, of Secretary of State Rice saying our, our strategy in Iraq needs to be clear, hold, and build. And and I literally had to pull over because my eyes filled with tears because yeah. I'd been trying to get that idea through for so long. And I think it was Kel Cullen who, who uh, got those words in front of her mm. and uh, got her to say it in congressional testimony. And so we had a, a, a band of insurgents, um, as, as Fred Kaplan called us, yeah. uh, and, and ultimately uh, we made progress, but the most important thing I think was was the experience of captains and majors and lieutenants and sergeants who uh, had, had tried it one way um, and and it hadn't worked. And, and you're sort of that guy, right? So the Fourth Infantry Division uh, I think was a little heavy on the force <laughs> and light on information and economics and politics yep. during their first tour. 
under General Odierno, but then then General Odierno himself, um, right, uh, came back as as the three star operational level commander for Petraeus when Petraeus was the MNFI commander, yep. and and uh, Odierno and the Fourth Infantry Division and the Army as a whole learned and changed, and I was unbelievably proud to be a small part of uh, a nudge. Uh, trying to make that happen, and and now I'm I'm again a nudge saying, hey, let's not forget everything we learned because future enemies, they're going to fight us the way where they have a chance to win if they can outlast us. Yeah. So let's let's not forget all the lessons that people like uh, Amos Fox, Captain Fox, <laughs> Major Fox learned um, at at such a horrific cost in lives and treasure. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> that's uh, that's really valuable. I think it's um, we we just have to not we we need to remember that adversaries, whomever that may be, they're going to fight in ways that are advantageous for themselves, right? And they're going to first and foremost, they're going to fight to stay alive, and then second, secondly, they're going to fight to win. And I think often we we tend to think they're going to fight the way we want them to fight, as opposed to those other two variables. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, I guess on the last the last thing here, John, before we close out, are there any hot takes uh, that are floating around uh, out there that you think are completely or widely off the mark or undercut the realities of armed conflict today? I think that um, I'm doing a bunch of work here with a, a, a team on the war in Ukraine, and I think um, the the lessons we're, we're learning there are helpful. Katie Crome and I wrote a piece that uh, um, my West Point classmate Randy George, the chief of staff of the Army, recognized a piece called The Call to Action mm-hmm lessons from Ukraine for the future force. So I, I absolutely don't want anybody to think that I don't think we should be preparing for large-scale combat operations. We should absolutely be preparing for those, but the, the very fact that we are preparing for them and that we're really good at them makes it less likely that our enemies are gonna to choose to fight us that way. So we, we really do have to be an army that can can fight and win the big one, but we also have mm-hmm. to be ready to deter and if necessary, win these um, horrific um, small stinking shadow wars of peace that I'm afraid yeah. our adversaries are going to continue to confront us with. Yeah, that's perfect. All right. With that, John, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure getting to talk to you today. I enjoyed it, Davis. All right. Thank you.